You're listening to Legally Bliss Conversations. This podcast reclaims and rewrites the stories female attorneys have been told about how we should practice law, grow our businesses, treat our clients, treat ourselves, and craft our identities as female attorneys. We'll hear inspiring stories from current and former female attorneys, the ones who question the stories they've been told, the ones who aren't afraid to live boldly and step into their own power. We'll learn from women who define success on their terms. Through lighthearted and curious conversation, we'll unpack the challenges these inspiring female attorneys have already navigated. So join me on this journey. You'll be empowered and ready to rewrite a completely new story about what is possible for you. I would like to welcome Claire E. Parsons to the Legally Blissed podcast. Claire is a local government and school law attorney in the Cincinnati area, a mom to two girls and an active community leader. She's also a certified meditation and yoga teacher and the founder of the Brilliant Legal Mind blog, where she writes about mindfulness in an approachable and practical way for lawyers and professionals. So Claire, thank you. Thank you so much for being on here. I was ecstatic when you agreed, <laughs> um, or except when you accepted my invitation, I was like, yes, because I've been following you um, for your, for a while. And um, I noticed recently that you met a big, a big milestone for your blog post. So tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, actually, Leah, too, we approached, we got 5,000 views last week. And then this week, I think it's a milestone that I've written 50 posts this uh, year, or actually it's, it's since the founding of the blog, we got to 50 posts and I've had a few guest posts on there, but um, I, when I started the blog, I did not know if I could keep it up. And I was kind of like a big question about whether when things picked up outside of COVID that we kind of pushed past into the real busyness of real life, like I'd keep it up, but I have, even though it's been really busy this uh, quarter, I've tried, you know, almost tried a trial uh, that I settled last minute, tried a hearing and kept writing. So that was really kind of awesome that I'm just still writing. So your blog, Brilliant Legal Mind, will you tell everyone a little bit about the blog, the content itself and the origination of this? Like how and why did you begin creating the Brilliant Legal Mind blog? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I love mindfulness and mindfulness is something that has changed my life. Um, early in my practice, I had a difficult pregnancy with my first daughter and it just kind of pushed me into a period of depression. And once I moved past that and healed and recovered from that, I started to realize that part of what happened with that was that the way I was living my life was kind of problematic. And it was more like I was excluding myself, isolating myself, not making as much time for friends and uh, loved ones, not relying on help from others, and that I was really overthinking things a lot. And so when I started to recover from that, one of the things I did was start meditating. And then slowly over the course of years, I started to undo some of those negative patterns, change how I lived my life. Um, and I just became a lot happier and my practice did really well. So that kind of put me in the, the position where I was really passionate and interested in mindfulness. I really like public speaking and I like writing a lot. Um, and so that has been something that I've been doing for my practice um, all along the way. Um, during COVID, I had the opportunity to 
um, become a meditation teacher and do a certification just because I had more time at home. And I then did a yoga teacher certification to sort of add on a different level of mindfulness. Um, but I have been writing and blogging since 2018 when I did the writers in residence program with Miss JD, which is a program for um, women lawyers and law students. It's a really good resource for women lawyers um, and law students to look into. Um, but I got to kind of play around with writing then and learn to do it consistently. I sort of played around with LinkedIn for a while, posted almost every day there. Um, and then once I finished my meditation teacher program, it just seemed like the, the idea to move forward with a blog because I realized how much I was had already written about mindfulness and already wanted to write about mindfulness. And so it just kind of grew out of that. Um, and so I do find that lawyers and law students and professionals in general, they know that mindfulness can help them, but what they struggle with is understanding how it can fit in their life and what it might do to like their self-image. And so I think sometimes when you can get beyond that and talk about it in real ways, um, I think you can reach more people. I love that. So do you find writing the blog sort of therapeutic in some ways? I think writing in, yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, I think it's not just the blog. I think writing in general for me is therapeutic and that's kind of what I've learned. So I, part, one of the biggest reasons I continue to meditate, you know, I'm not somebody who really has ever had big bliss experiences or anything like that. Um, I've had some pleasant meditations, obviously, and I do like how it feels now, uh, but like, it's really not about having good meditations for me. It's more about when I meditate, my overthinking and a lot of other issues that I have in my life sort of calm down. And so overthinking for me has been something that I have had my whole life. And it wasn't until I started meditating that I started to see that I could actually not do that. I thought that I had no control over it. Um, and a lot of it was more that I didn't recognize that I was thinking, or I would always try to think my way out of every problem, um, instead of realizing that maybe this isn't even a problem for today, this is a problem for maybe three years from now. Um, and I, I started to see how much that robbed my life of joy, um, and helped me in like basically maybe miss good times. So when I meditate, it helps me not do that so much. But part of that overthinking piece um, is the writing, because one of the things I noticed with my meditation practice is I would have a lot of ideas that would kind of come back to me over and over again. And so I finally realized that those aren't problematic things to just get rid of and ignore. Those are ideas for writing. And so I would see them in meditation. I would sit down and they would just come out really easily. And for me, like I actually like journaling wouldn't be enough. I have to actually publish the piece to really let the thoughts go. And so the writing is sort of a piece of that and it kind of fits with meditation, but it's, it's something that helps me let go of things and process the world. And I do think that, you know, enough people have told me that like some of the things, the ideas I've presented have helped them understand some of these ideas better. Um, and so, you know, it's just been a fun way to let go of thoughts and build a community. I love that. So when, let me just ask you, when you think of mindfulness, like what is, what does that mean to a lay person who isn't familiar with this space at all? What, what does mindfulness mean to, to you? Yeah. And I, I probably would say that most of us have experienced mindfulness in our lives. And it's probably like the times when we feel good and happy and like our lives have meaning. Um, 
it's just awareness in the present moment without judging it. Um, and like uh, intentionally, right? I mean, that's the definition that the researcher John Kabat-Zinn would use. And I think that's a good one. Um, but really it's just present moment awareness. But the judgment piece is a, a huge part of that. And it's something that we often overlook. We do it so automatically that um, we maybe don't notice how much we are judging. And I don't always mean judging in like the, your judgmental sense or anything like that but just evaluating your experience constantly. And when you evaluate your experience, there's always this push and pull with it. There's always um, this idea that, you know, our brains are even set up, that we are always looking for a reward and we are looking to push away the bad stuff. But it's that push and pull that actually creates a lot of unhappiness for us. We can't change our brain always looking for a reward, but we can sort of game the system a little bit if we can learn how to provide better rewards that are more wholesome for us and watch some of our habits. Mm -hmm. So are you teaching your children, your girls, um, mindfulness and meditation? Um, in some ways. So um, my daughters are five and nine. And so when they were very little, we did teach them how to take a deep breath. And um, that helped. Um, I was actually pretty surprised at how much they would do that. I think one of the unintended benefits of it was when I made them take a deep breath, I had to take a deep breath to model it. And so it made us both calm down. And I think like a deep breath, like, I, I mean, everybody says, take a breath, whatever it, when people are escalated, but I don't think people realize how much that really can matter. If you take a truly full deep breath in and out, that could be like five to 10 seconds. And if you're talking about a time when you're starting to get escalated, you know, that's a time when it is enough time to notice you're escalated and start to calm down. And a deep breath is something that you feel in your body. So if you can come back to that deep breath and feel how you feel in your body for just a second, it may help you get out of the thoughts and come back to reality. Um, so that is one of the, the very small things that you can do to bring it to your children. I think a bigger thing though, is that I do it. Um, you know, we have done some yoga and we have done some meditations and stuff with my girls. Um, I have like one for kids on, on the blog as well. Um, but I think the modeling it um, from parents is something that you can do that's more important where, you know, you're demonstrating that you take time for yourself and that you do things for yourself. And then when they become interested in it, um, then you can answer their questions and help facilitate, you know, getting them things they need and resources and meditations and stuff to help them out. Yeah. So teaching by example, rather than a, some type of road methodology. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think like with some of these practices, you know, there are a variety of them. And so not every practice works for everyone, but in particular with kids, like they, they are going to model your behavior a lot. Um, and they, but they don't always like you to tell them what to do. <laughs> so, um, so if you, if you kind of push it on them and force it on them, they're not going to want to do it. Um, but like, there are a lot of things that kids can do. And in like, for instance, the deep breath is really important. Um, helping them learn how to pay attention to their body and relax it. You know, that's one thing that, you know, my oldest daughter, at least we've used when we just got our, our vaccines recently, you know, she's like, she realized, Hey, it actually, when mom tells me to relax, when I take the shot, it's because it hurts less. And my five-year-old that doesn't do anything for, um, she just fights and screams and we have to like restrain her, but you know, 
the, everyone things work different for different people. So I think like with kids, the example is the, is the biggest thing you can do for sure. So where do you see this fitting in with law firms? Have you had an opportunity to go in to like a law firm environment and teach mindfulness and or meditation and or yoga um, to any groups within law firms? Yeah, I not not physically. I've done it via Zoom because of the last two years have been COVID. Because I started, I think the first time I even started teaching was in 2018. So it wasn't too much before then that I began. Uh, but yeah, law firms are looking at it from wellness committees. Um, uh, we've we've done, you know, I've done more things also with like my chamber and other professionals, and I've done some things with banks and other groups as well. So there's, uh, I think there is um, definitely. Um, some reception of mindfulness and yoga. I think that honestly, that firms should maybe more consider, you know, longer term courses with individuals instead of one off events. I think a lot of people know about mindfulness at this point and understand it and are not, we're not as much in the phase where we have to tell them about mindfulness. I think now we're in the phase where people need more, um, more resource in terms of how to actually use it. Because I go out and I teach people and they, they ask me questions where it's clear that they've taken yoga classes or they've done some meditation, but the questions they are asking is how do I actually do it? Because I've tried and I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z. So a lot of my presentations are more aimed at that stuff. Um, but like, I think that having people kind of come in more than just one session is, is where I think it's going to be going next, because I do think people need some more direction. And, and honestly, like if you go to a mindfulness center, you do a retreat, those are all led by teachers and, and by, and they're done in community. And the reason is that none of this is easy stuff. So, um, apps are wonderful and some have question and answer, um, opportunities like 10% happier. Uh, but having a person that you can actually talk to is great. And having group discussion about some of it is also great because the best thing I've encountered from retreats is honestly seeing other people ask questions and realizing that I'm not crazy because I have that same issue. Um, and when you hear enough people ask questions like this, you're like, oh, this is really normal. And I think you start to feel um, not so alone with some of your psychosis and start to realize that it's not, it's not really that there's anything wrong with you. It's just the human condition. And so I, I think some of those things would be beneficial for firms to think about um, more like courses or groups or community kind of elements to it. I think that's what would be most helpful for people. Right. So the participants could have some type of opportunity for progression or transformation over time, rather than just kind of like a one and done deal. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. There's a lot of skills. I think that people kind of need, I think that, that what meditation does. And a lot of times the way it's taught is that you pick up skills along the way. Um, and good teachers can help people progress from skill to skill and sort of move forward. I think sometimes though, a lot of people start out meditating and they think I'm doing this to get more calm. And so they get discouraged when they find that they aren't calm at all, that they're a mess and they have all kinds of thoughts and judgments and all kinds of things happen and they can't find quiet and peace and all of that. 
well, you don't start out calm, you're doing it to get calm. And so the thing is that you sort of have to let go of that goal a little bit and realize that you have to build the skills and it's the skills that help you come back to calm when you lose it. But that does take time. And, and honestly, with lawyers, some of what we have to learn is that our brains aren't the only way that we solve problems. We do have to recognize that we have bodies, we have limits of our bodies, that our bodies actually control a lot of what happens in our life, and that there's no fighting that. And there's also the idea that I think, you know, with a lot of people who come to meditation, they, they focus a lot on the breath, and they focus on focus, because that's what lawyers are comfortable with. We're less comfortable with our emotions and um, with feeling lack of control. And so I think if people, you know, kind of understood the importance of care and responding with kindness to themselves and others as they practice, I think they would have an easier time moving forward with it and feeling like it's adding value to their life. Um, because that care and that compassion piece is something that I think is, is, has been missing um, or not emphasized enough in a lot of the discussion on mindfulness. I'm starting to see it emerge more, which is good. Um, but I think lawyers are still struggling with that in particular. That that actually makes a lot of sense. So what do you do? Um, like, what advice do you have for that lawyer who comes to you and says, like, I would really love to, you know, to be able to meditate, but my brain is going crazy or I can't call my brain. Like, I feel like that's kind of the big thing people complain about, whether or not they're an attorney, right? Um, that it's like an overactive mind. Yeah. I, I think that, I think it would be depend, my answer would probably depend on who I'm talking to and what I'm observing from that person as they ask it and what the context is. But I think one thing that I, is important is when you say you can't calm your mind, why, is, why, why do you want to? And if your mind and all the thoughts are the problem, why are you using that same strategy to try to fix it, right? So you're thinking, I can't call my mind, it won't stop. So I need to think of another thing to do to make it stop. So one answer, a lot of times, a lot of teachers will tell you, when you are sitting in meditation and a distraction arises, whatever it is, the answer is to observe it, to notice it's there, possibly to notice how it's affecting your body, and then um, to go back to the breath. It's not to force the idea, the thoughts away. It's not to judge yourself. It's just to go back to the breath or to go back to whatever your focal point is. Um, and so the, uh, the way that you get rid of thoughts is really practicing not engaging with those thoughts and not judging those thoughts and not being disturbed by those thoughts and not pushing them away. Or when those thoughts cause pain to you or bring up, hard emotions, learning how to skillfully care for and hold those emotions. But a lot of what meditation practice is, is really instead of making, making the, the thing go away, like maybe you, anger is a really good example. If you get anger feelings, you can't force anger down and you can't force it away, but you can learn how to hold it and build space around it. And so in doing that, you realize you have lots of space that anger in proportion gets smaller and it controls you less. And you're not gonna be able to do this every time. And I mean, even if you meditate for 20 years, you're not gonna be able to do this every time. 
But if you can gradually build that skill, you can maybe do this six times out of 10 when before you would get knocked down and thrown off balance 10 times out of 10. And that is a huge improvement overall in your life. And so that's, that's kind of how you deal with the thoughts and the can't clear your mind and all of that is that you realize that you don't necessarily have to because you build the confidence that you're not disturbed by every thought. Mm -hmm. And then perhaps that capacity to feel anger or sadness or whatever kind of that negative, I have to be careful about judging (laughs) our own feelings, right? Whatever that um, emotion is, that capacity actually allows us to have a greater capacity for happiness. That that's been something that I've noticed for, for me. Um, let me ask this is sort of something that I've noticed myself with, with meditation. Sometimes when I'm meditating, I have like a really good idea. Like something will come into my head. I'm like, Whoa. And I have this urge to, um, stop and write it down. Cause I'm like, it's going to go away forever. Right. So what is your advice for people who like have thoughts like that during a meditative state? Let's take a quick pause for a message from my sponsor, Prominent Practice. Are you thinking about a career transition from big law or partnership to a solo practice, selling your practice, or maybe you're launching a project unrelated to law? Whatever the reason for your transition, you'll need support along the way. Enter Prominent Practice, an executive consulting and marketing firm specializing in branding, positioning, and reputation management for transitioning attorneys. Founded by a female entrepreneur who spent a decade building smart digital platforms for thought leaders before pivoting to focus on high-end service providers who were preparing for successions, mergers, and acquisition events in their businesses. If you're thinking about making a big business move, don't risk losing the ability to leverage the reputation you've spent your career building. Let Prominent Practice be your guide. Visit prominentpractice.com slash blist for an exclusive introduction. I do find that for me, a lot of the best thoughts come back. I mean, the really ones that matter uh, and the things that are important, I I think that they come back. So I would say there's some element of trusting yourself. Um, The pure mindfulness response to that would be to um, to just watch the thought and then see if you can come back and let it go and then see what happens. Um, There's also, you know, there's also the school of thought, though, that if it's going to just totally distract your practice and you won't be able to focus anyway, what's the harm of writing it down? I would say that probably if you, I mean, honestly, some of, some of what mindfulness practice is, is it's, it's being a scientist and, and being willing to experiment and observe with what happens. So I don't think it's a huge deal if perhaps you, um, if you stop a practice once and write it down. I don't think that is probably the end of the world. I would observe what happens with your practice and whether you can go back to the practice and what you feel like after you do. Um, if this is something that is happening to you all the time, though, and you always have the ideas and you always want to write them down, I think that you might be missing something if you always do write it down. Because I think that part of what might be going on potentially 
is you don't trust yourself to remember it. Or do you want to not feel something that could come up in your practice and the mind comes up with this great idea to distract you, to get you to stop? Because um, I'm not saying that's just you, that's all minds. They, they can be kind of devious sometimes and throw stuff at us. And so that's why just watching and committing to the practice can be very good. Um, but at the same time, um, if, you, if you are flexible with your practice, there's also opportunity to learn there too. Um, so I think it's, yeah, I, I, I kind of, you know, I've kind of written this about this for like, for moving when you practice, like, should you move? Are you allowed to move when you practice? And my answer is you're allowed to move when you practice. And, and so if you, if you kind of set it up as there's two paths you can take my, my foot's asleep, I'm in meditation practice and I want to move my foot. So the one path is moving my foot and making myself feel better. So that might be practicing flexibility and that might be practicing like compassion for yourself, which is good. If you don't move and you kind of stick with it and you watch the experience and maybe you see that it goes away over time or that it really doesn't bother you or you just can ignore it after a while. Well, that's probably practicing discipline and focus. And so I don't know that you can really make a wrong move, right? But I think it's watching what those patterns do for us and what those choices do for us, staying present with it and seeing. Um, but if you are, I will just say that the watch out for the recurring habits, because if there's something drawing you away from practice a lot, that could just be the mind not wanting you to feel stuff because I can tell you, I'm somebody who I, I have habits that crop up for me all the time where I, it's trying to get me to check out. And it sometimes takes me days or weeks or whatever to realize that's what I've been doing. And I can kind of work myself out of it, but we all do that. And that's all normal stuff in meditation. Yeah, I think that's beautiful that you're teaching this right now because it's helping people realize that, you know, you don't have to go into your meditation practice being perfect and being able to be completely Zen for 30 minutes or whatever it is, right? Like even highly experienced um, meditation teachers you know, have struggle kind of with, don't struggle, I guess it's not really the correct term, but, you know, it's kind of an in and out of meditation state. So I'm curious about, and okay, so I got an email um, from you, I guess it's part of your blog, and you had mentioned um, decision-making in the frame of scarcity mindset versus abundance. And you also went on to talk about stress management. And I'd like to read a quote from, from that, if you don't mind, because it was so, I think it's kind of a good segue because I think that, you know, attorneys are really wanting to find ways to help them manage stress, right? But this is what you said. To be sure, vacations and time away are essential to managing work as stressful as law practice. But for me, it's not necessarily weeks off or trips to exotic locations that have helped me find a sense of abundance in my life. Rather, my life began to feel more abundant, more prosperous and open when I began consistently devoting small pockets of time to my passions. I just love that. Like, I think my chin hit the floor whenever I read that. So, and then you went on to say, and this was kind of highlighted in the post is abundance is a product of small, 
small acts done consistently over time. But what I'm curious about here, um, Claire, is what are your passions, right? Like, I feel like your passions are shining through right now because we're talking about yoga and, um, you know, meditation and mindfulness. So what are some yeah, of your I mean, other I, I really like cooking. I like writing is, is a big thing for me. Um, I, I actually really like speaking and I like teaching. So the, the blog and, and mindfulness, it's kind of the blog right now is a big part of that. Um, but like having, I guess what I, what I meant by passions, I guess, is that I have enough, um, energy, um, left after my practice, um, to do something else for the world. Um, I'm not, and, and, and I'm not somebody who really cares a lot about like, um, fancy trips and, you know, clothes and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, the monetary piece for law practice has never been like a huge thing for me. I, I'm a local government lawyer and a school lawyer. And so doing something good for my community and doing something good for other people is what makes me feel good. But doing only the law practice piece, I think um, it just doesn't feel like enough because there's other pieces of my personality. Um, and so being able to, um, you know, talk about the softer side of life and being able to explain the power of that for people like, like me, for other lawyers and being able to interpret that um, and to be able to write kind of in a fun way, sometimes humorous, I hope, I think, um, you know, to be able to sort of use some of other, other creative things that I never honestly thought I would have been able to do like learn how to make images on Canva because I'm not artistic at all. Um, and to be able to keep expanding that um, and reach new people, like that's just something that, you know, I, I, I didn't really expect. And it honestly kind of came out of a dark time in my life, but I'm like grateful for it now. And so it's, it's the fact that you can kind of plant these little seeds over, over the course of your life and you end up with something really great that you never would have had and you can't necessarily get just from law practice. And I don't wanna make it sound like I don't like my law practice. I actually love my law practice, but it is, it is draining in one way that my other creative um, and activities with respect to mindfulness kind of, they kind of actually grow together almost symbiotically um, so that it gives me energy to go back and do my other parts of my law practice. Let, I'm curious, where do you see your own law practice and your mindfulness teaching going in the future? I haven't necessarily thought about it because it wasn't like a big plan to be a meditation teacher, honestly. I mean, I started talking about mindfulness because I really liked it and I thought there was some value for professionals and it went really well. Like the first time I ever talked about mindfulness, it was for women professionals and they were bringing chairs in the room um, at this, this big uh, regional summit I spoke at. And like I was somebody and I'd never presented on it before. So it wasn't like part of a master plan. Um, I, I do think like I, it's something that I'm going to be like using as a tool in my practice for a long time. Um, and, and people ask me like whether I use it with clients or anything like that. And I don't overtly talk about mindfulness with clients um, unless like they ask me a question about it or it comes up. I do, um, I did recently like use a lot of compassion ideas when I was talking to a, a witness in a case because she was really kind of worried and scared about testifying and it was really useful. 
but I didn't need to tell her like that researcher Kristen Neff has all these principles. I just needed to sort of help her through the, the situation. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, I do think like, I, I am very interested more in conflict resolution. I do special education work uh, for school districts. And I think like, and also as a litigator, um, I, I just know that a lot of times if you can figure out how to solve a problem instead of making it bigger, there's a lot of value in that. So at some point I probably will become a mediator and work towards some, some resolution, potentially also within the special education and school law arena. Um, but I don't exactly know where the whole mindfulness thing is, is going. Um, I think like in the future with the blog, uh, I, I'm gonna be preparing some courses and I hope writing a book one of these days. Um, but like exactly where this is going, I don't know because I think COVID has kind of um, shown us we need it, but I still don't know that we have a lot of clarity about where it's going. Um, but I'm having fun um, and enjoying talking to lawyers from you know all over the country about these issues. Um, and I do think there's a lot of need for just practical and useful advice from somebody who actually knows law practice um, to help interpret this idea for, for lawyers. Right. So if you could give a piece of advice to a lawyer, specifically um, with respect to maybe mindfulness in his or her practice, like just a little nugget, what would it, what would it be? I think that, you know, when we're, when we're talking about the United States and um, the West, we have a lot of ideas of, in our culture about that kind of give us the idea that there's something wrong with us, um, that we have to fix something. And, you know, that kind of goes all the way back to Christianity and even beyond that, right? The original sin idea. And I don't want to argue theology necessarily, but I think a lot of us have this kind of concept. Um, and one of the things that really helped me was I found teacher Tara Brock, who's really well known, and she kind of says that over and over again in all her talks, right? There's nothing wrong with you. And at a certain point, I think when you practice, I, I hope that's the lesson you get is that, that fundamentally you're good. You have the potential to do bad all the time, right? But I think that a lot of times when, when we learn how to manage conditions to make sure that we feel safe and happy, loved um, and at peace, when we can figure that piece out, I think what you're gonna find is that you do good things then. You are a good person in those conditions. So I, I hope that the, the lesson that people can understand from meditation is that they are not fixing themselves. They don't need to. What they need to do is, is get back to what their real nature is. And I think they'll see that it is good. And I think they have to, to trust it, right? To trust that they're, they're good. And, and so when they do that, I think then the next thing is, creating the conditions to let that goodness just shine through. And I know probably some lawyers listening to it think that I sound like a hippie and all of that. But I think when, when you practice enough, I think that's what you will see. And I think that can come through and it can come through even in a contentious deposition. It doesn't mean that you can't try a trial and it doesn't mean you can't litigate aggressively. It doesn't mean you can't make a good argument in court. Um, it doesn't mean you have to be soft, but it does mean you have to trust yourself, know your boundaries, um, and understand that fundamentally you're a good person and you deserve good things. And 
Um, and, and I think it makes it mu so much easier when you accept your own goodness to accept the hard parts of life, mm. but those aren't necessarily your fault. That's just part of life. Right. Do you wish like every courthouse had a mindfulness meditation room? <laughs> so <laughs> before court, you could kind of go, you know, have a few quiet moments, take a deep breath. I think every courthouse has that already. I think it's us realizing it. Um, you know, I, I was at a retreat one time and I was like, oh, retreats are great because I can just set my identity down, right? I, I can just not be clear the lawyer, clear the mom. I'm just a being sitting here in a meditation retreat. Then a few months later, I realized, oh, anytime I sit in meditation, I can set my identity down. I'm just clear here sitting. That's all I'm doing. And then a few months later, I realized I can set my identity down at any minute. I can just take a breath and just be a person, just being. The courthouses already have meditation rooms. If you can learn to pay attention to what's in your head and what's in your heart and what's in your body and be with that experience, that, that's meditation. You're always there. A nice quiet space is something that facilitates that, but it's not necessarily necessary to do it. You don't need to bring like your yoga mat and your big round, you know, soft <laughs> meditation pillow. Um, yeah, that's a really, really good point. To the extent we can facilitate those things by creating rooms that, that give a symbolic gesture towards or a practical gesture towards um, honoring a need for quiet and contemplation in legal places, that's one thing. But we don't necessarily need those spaces to be able to do it. The harder thing is actually doing it in our lives every day. Like that's the hard thing. Yeah. And just integrating that into your life, right? Like when you sit down before you start working on a legal matter, right? Maybe take three to five minutes to do some deep breathing or whatever works for you. It's not like me looking for a meditation room <laughs> is almost like, trying to find some type of external circumstance that would prevent me from just taking a few minutes by myself, right? Or just kind of in my own head. Um, no, but I think that, that that point is is very valid. So Claire, um, I wanna be very respectful of your time. Where can people find you? Yeah, so I'm on uh, LinkedIn at Claire E. Parsons, and um, feel free to reach out or message me. I actually look at messages on LinkedIn. Um, and also the blog is brilliantlegalmind.com. And we are on WordPress, as well as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I just want to say thank you so much for having this conversation with me, Claire. I have been so excited about learning a little more about you and a little more about mindfulness. And before I close, I do want to say one thing I had asked Claire, um, what do you want the listeners primary, primarily um, young female attorneys to know about you? And she says that I used to be a female attorney too, that I was scared and had no clue how I can make it work as a mom and a lawyer. And then I figured it out. So I think she's figured it out. We're all kind of figuring it out though, right? Still figuring it out though. I just want to say that. Thank you so much for hanging out with me, Claire. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today on Legally Bliss Conversations. If you love this episode 
and you want to hang out with other inspiring and light gold female attorneys, be sure to join the Legally Bliss community at legallybliss.com. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at Susie Hickson. See you next time.